Good morning. Welcome to First Baptist Church here in Pineville. We're so delighted that you are here. It is a great day to worship the Lord. We experience His grace and His mercy, and today His presence. Emmanuel, God with us. Amen? We're so glad that you are here. And if this is your very first time visiting with us, we are delighted that you are here. If you would, just take a moment and fill out that perforated card that's in your bulletin so that we can pray for you. Anyone that has a prayer need, we will pray for you this week. We are delighted that you're here. After our service is over, those of you that are our first-time guests, would you meet our pastor, Dr. Stuart Holloway, out in the foyer? He has a gift for you, his personal book, The Privilege of Worship, and it will be just great to connect with you that way. Let's sing together today. Would you stand and let's sing some Christmas carols together. Heart the herald, angels sing. Let's sing together.
Thank you so much. Please be seated. of Bethlehem appeared a star while angels sang the lonely shepherds three wise men seeking truth they traveled from afar hoping to find the child from heaven and falling on their knees they bow before the humble Prince of Peace. We bring an offering of worship to our King. No one on earth deserves the praises that we sing. Jesus, may you receive the honor that you're due. Oh Lord, I bring an offering to you.
That's our heart's cry today, amen, that our singing and our worship, praise team, come join me on the stage as we sing and as we continue to worship today, that our singing and our worship is an offering to the Lord. Won't you join us as we sing together? Angels from the realms of glory, stand and let's sing together.
May we pray together. Our Father, it's with joy in our hearts and thanksgiving that we come to worship you today. We thank you for the blessing of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you gave to us in a manger on that first Christmas day. Our hearts are filled with joy because of the forgiveness of sin and the grace that you have so graciously given to us. And for that, Lord, we are thankful and give to you all honor and praise and glory. And as we come in worship, by returning to you the gifts that you have given to us, we pray, Father, that you would strengthen this church and help us to share the good news of Jesus Christ to all the nations of the world. Thank you for your blessing of your Son. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. was born Oh night divine Oh night Oh night Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. And change shall he break for the slave is our brother and in name all the pressure shall cease sweet hymns of joy in grateful chorus raise we 
Don't you love Christmas music? Wonderful. If, if uh, Kevin was smiling a little extra big today, that's because his whole family's here. And wonderful to hear from Katie, who's normally helping lead worship over at Pine Lake Church in Jackson, Mississippi area, mega church in the Southern Baptist Convention. And great that she could be away with us today. So thank you for being with us. It's good to have all three of the Turner kids back with us. So thank you guys for joining us today. Welcome home. That's one of the beauties of Christmas, isn't it? Everybody getting to come home, and, and that happens here at church as well on this Sunday, and especially tomorrow night. One of my favorite things is seeing everybody as they come back home for Christmas, and we're grateful to have these times of worship together. In December of 1903, after many attempts, the Wright brothers, Orville and Wilbur, finally were successful in getting their flying machine off the ground and into the air at Kitty Hawk. Thrilled over the accomplishment, they telegraphed this message to their sister, Catherine, and it said, success, four flights Thursday morning, all against 21-mile wind. Started from level with engine power alone. Average speed through air, 31 miles. Longest, 57 seconds. Inform press, home Christmas. Catherine, after receiving the telegram, hurried to the editor of the local newspaper, showed him the message, and he glanced at it and said, how nice the boys will be home for Christmas. <laughs> he had totally missed the main part of the story and only caught part of the story. You know, too many times we get part of the story, but not the whole story. And sometimes, like the newspaper editor, we may even miss the main part in the story. It can be like that with the story of Jesus, even. I suppose we know the main things. We know the beginning of the story, that he was born. That's Christmas. We know that he arose. That's Easter. And we know from Sunday school some scattered stories in between. But if someone asked, could you trace sketch out the life of Jesus for me, how many of us could really do that? And so today, as we prepare for Christmas and to celebrate all that's ahead of us this week, let's retrace the steps of Jesus 
We're going to look at seven key movements in the life of Jesus that have seven key messages for us. And if we can remember these moments, these movements, it'll help us to have a truly merry Christmas instead of a merry me-mas. We're going to use the Gospel of Luke as our source for these seven key moments. And of course, remember that Philippians 2, that great hymn, is kind of behind this whole series. So if you'll turn to the Gospel of Luke... Chapter 2, verses 10 through 11 have the first movement, of course, and that is Jesus' birth, that Jesus came to us. We call Luke chapter 2 the Christmas story, but this is not "'Twas the night before Christmas and all through the house. It is the night of the first Christmas." And so much is packed into this seemingly simple story, but it's the message of the angels to the shepherds that is really central. So look at Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. I want to focus on the clause, a Savior has been born to you. In formal academic writing, we're taught to write in the third person. Third person means you stand back and you observe and you talk about what's happening. You look in. There are no I's or you's or we's even. It's all one and he and she and they. It's immensely impersonal because someone sometime way back said that's how academic writing is supposed to be. Thankfully, though, the Bible isn't like that. It is full of first person and second person. The eyes and the U's leap off the pages, reminding us that this book is living and active, that it is about a personal relationship. It's not dead and cold and bland. The things of God are not removed and distant. They are up close and personal. They are life-changing. They are convicting. They are demanding. But most of all, they are for us. And I'm glad the message to the shepherds was not some true but distant third person note. A Savior has been born to humanity. No, the message was intensely personal. A Savior has been born to you. Yes, you shepherds in this field right here in Judea, a Savior has been born to you. And now 2,000 years later, that you to the shepherds becomes a you to us. A Savior has been born to you, Daryl. A Savior has been born to you, Zelda. A Savior has been born to you, Frank. A Savior has been born to you. But then we can take this message to the streets and the you to us became, becomes a you to them. In his book, The Deliverance to the Captives, Karl Barth shares a Christmas sermon that he preached to prisoners in Basel, Switzerland. And reflecting upon this very verse, Barth writes this, For your sake, God was not content to be God, but willed to become man. For you... 
He emptied himself that you may be exalted. For you he gave himself that you have been lifted up and drawn unto him. The wondrous deed brought him no gain, fulfilled no need of his. It was accomplished only for you, for us. In his birth, Jesus came to us. We fast forward along in the story a little bit and we come to what I think is the next significant movement and that is his baptism where Jesus was anointed for us. If you look at Luke chapter 3 verses 21 and 22, Luke spends very little time on Jesus' baptism but what time he does spend there is significant. In verses 21 and 22 of Luke 3, we read, When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Verse 22 is significant For our understanding of who Jesus is. Because here, Jesus is clearly identified as the Son of God. The second person of the Trinity. In fact, in this rare moment in Scripture, we have all three persons of the Trinity present in one place. The Son is standing in the water ready to be baptized. The Spirit descends in bodily form like the dove. And the Father speaks from heaven. The Father speaking... Reminds us that Jesus was not a man suddenly somehow blessed to be a savior. Jesus is what he has always been and always will be. The son in whom the father is well pleased. Luke's emphasis, however, is not necessarily upon Jesus being the son of God or the father speaking from heaven. Luke's emphasis is upon the spirit's coming upon upon Jesus. In fact, the analogy of the descent like a dove is found also in Mark and Matthew, but Luke adds that the dove descended in bodily form to emphasize and intensify the reality of the Spirit's coming upon Jesus, anointing him for ministry. Anointing was a common practice in the Old Testament and the New Testament. People and things were anointed To signify holiness or separation unto God. The tabernacle, the temple, and their furnishings were anointed for service to God. Prophets and priests and kings were anointed for service before God. In fact, sometimes even other things were anointed for God. Fundamentally, the anointing was an act of God which did several things for whatever was being anointed. It set whatever was anointed for a a special purpose a special place, a special office. And so when Jesus was anointed by the Spirit of God, God was showing us that Jesus had everything he needed to fulfill his ministry on our behalf. He was anointed. And because he was, after Jesus' baptism, Luke has Jesus go out into a temptation battle with Satan, which Jesus wins soundly because Luke says Jesus went full of the Holy Spirit. 
And after Jesus wins that battle with Satan, Jesus then begins his ministry in Galilee, as Luke tells us, in the power of the Spirit. And that leads then to the third movement, which is the movement of his ministry. And in his ministry, Jesus taught us to follow him. Our text is Luke chapter 9, verses 57 to 62. Last week, I mentioned that the focus of Jesus' ministry was threefold. Preaching and teaching and, and healing. In living among us, he taught us how to truly live. But most of all, he taught us to follow him. This passage in Luke challenges us, erasing every notion of easy believism or casual Christianity. Look at what this story recounts. As they were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, uh, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Of God. In this little passage, three people come to Jesus and we learn three lessons about commitment. The first person comes with great enthusiasm. They're ready to go. They'll go wherever Jesus wants them to go. But Jesus shows them and us that following him takes more than shallow enthusiasm. It takes total commitment. The second person is called to follow him and he's willing, but he has some things to tend to first. But Jesus shows him that following him takes more than a willing response. It takes immediate commitment. And the third person comes and he asks just first to go say goodbye to his family. It's a seemingly reasonable request. But Jesus uses it as an opportunity to teach us that following him takes more than devoted desire. It takes undivided commitment. And so as Jesus interacts with people all throughout the Gospels and we see him healing people and we see him teaching and we see him preaching, he shows deep compassion and love, but he calls for total and immediate and undivided commitment. Follow me, he says. And they either do or they do not. As you read the New Testament and listen to the call of Christ on people's lives, you can never say you were induced to follow Christ on false pretenses. You can't say, well, I didn't know what I was getting into. No, Jesus makes it very, very clear. There's a high cost to following Christ. When you choose to follow Jesus, you know what you're getting into. And you can't read the stories of Jesus without asking, am I really a follower of Jesus like he wants me to be? Am I committed as I need to be? As Jesus taught us to follow him, he showed us that if any of us would follow after him, then we must take up our cross daily 
and follow him. And that is the fourth movement of the life of Jesus, the crucifixion. And the truth is that Jesus died for us. The key text for this is over in Luke chapter 23, verse 47. But to get the context, I want to read verses 44 through 48. Luke chapter 23. It was about the sixth hour and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. For the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breast and went away. Look again at the centurion's statement in verse 47. He watches what's happened and he says, Surely this was a righteous man. The synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, synoptic meaning seen with one eye, all tell the crucifixion story in similar ways. But they differ slightly in some ways for different emphasis. And that is the case here. Both Matthew and Mark have the centurion saying, Surely this man was the Son of God. But Luke changes it up a little bit, not emphasizing so much the Son of God part as much as Jesus' righteousness. He's not denying that Jesus is the Son of God. He just thinks that an unrighteous Son of God would be ridiculous. And so Luke emphasizes his righteousness, that he was absolutely innocent and sinless. Now, why is that so important? Because Jesus died for us in our place. And for something to take the place of another in sacrifice, it had to be perfect. Even going back to the Old Testament, when the lambs would be brought for sacrifice, the priest inspected the lambs to make sure they were spotless, without blemish, that they could stand as the sacrifice. Well, in his accounting of the crucifixion, Luke turns the centurion into a priest of sorts. A priest who was looking at this lamb being sacrificed. And this centurion crucified people every day. He crucified criminals regularly. He knew what sinful people looked like. He had a daily diet of sin. But when Jesus was crucified, this centurion who knew sin stood back and said, hang on a second. This guy's different. Surely this man was righteous. Surely he was innocent. And in that moment, we find, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, that Jesus, he who knew no sin, became sin for us. We realize with Peter what he writes in 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in body, but made alive in the spirit. 
The cross reveals the love of God as nothing else in the universe. For in the cross, we see the righteous dying for the unrighteous. Uh, The ones who should have died stand on the ground shouting and cursing while the one on the cross who should not have died is there praying. When we stand at the manger, we stand in the shadow of the cross. And the one who came to us, who was anointed for us, and who taught us how to follow him, then died for us. But thank God it didn't stop there. In fact, it couldn't stop there, for if we only had a dead Savior, we wouldn't have a Savior at all. Thankfully, three days later, Jesus rose again. And that is the fifth movement in the life of Jesus, the resurrection. That Jesus made life available to us. In Luke 24, we have Luke's account of the resurrection, and it goes this way. In Luke chapter 24, verses 1 and following, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. And in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Now, obviously, the ladies were not expecting a resurrection that morning. They expected to go to the tomb, find Jesus' body right where they'd left it on Friday evening. And when the ladies tried to figure out what happened, two men who were obviously angels appear. And these angels tell the ladies what has happened. He is risen. But what keys into me for our truth today is what the angels ask in verse 5. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Ladies, you're not going to find him here. A graveyard is for dead people, not living people. I'm afraid many people are looking for life in a graveyard. They pursue everything the world has to offer. But they find exactly what Solomon found in Ecclesiastes. Complete meaninglessness. A chasing after the wind. A grasping at air. Grand achievements? Meaningless. Uh, More money? I, I just need more and maybe more and that's meaningless. Pleasure? Once the rush is gone, I need some more. It's meaningless. It doesn't matter what this world has to offer. It's really no different than seeking life in a cemetery. The trappings of the world are but tombstones. They may look beautiful. They may be rather expensive. But all they point to is death. But Jesus, Jesus is living And because he is, he makes life available to us. In John 10, 10, he says, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. In John 3, 16, he tells us that whoever believes in him would not perish, but could have everlasting life. So he brings in abundant life and everlasting life. And he offers that to us because he too is alive. And we have 
though two more movements to go. Because even the resurrection didn't end at all. The sixth movement of Jesus' life was the ascension. And that means that Jesus rules us and intercedes for us. After appearing to people after his resurrection for 40 days, Jesus took them out to the vicinity of Bethany. And Luke shares the story at the end of Luke 24, at the very end of his gospel. In verse 51, he writes, While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. Jesus ascended to heaven, but was he done? Is it the end of the movie? Do the credits start rolling? No. One of my favorite quotes comes from Walter Wink, and I've shared this before. Walter Wink says that killing Jesus was like trying to destroy a dandelion by blowing on its head. For Satan, the death of Jesus only made matters worse. Killing Jesus only gave him more power. For once he was dead and buried, he could pay for the sins of humanity and be raised to life. And once he had been raised to life, he could offer abundant and everlasting life to everyone in the world. And once he had been raised from the dead, he could rally his disciples and he commissioned them. And to tell them to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And once he had commissioned his disciples, he could ascend to heaven where he could rule and reign and intercede for people. And where he could dispatch his Holy Spirit now to fill everybody with the Holy Spirit of God. Not just one Savior and the whole world could be changed. Satan... Messed up. But it was all according to the plan of God. The ascension was the foundation of all the work that Christ is exercising today. Philip Yancey has said if Easter Sunday was the most exciting day of the disciples' lives, for Jesus the most exciting day was probably the day of ascension. In the early Christian hymn recorded by Paul in Philippians 2 that's been the background for this entire humbler Humbug series says that God exalted Jesus then to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Because Jesus reigns over us, he is the object of our worship. He is the intercessor of our prayers. The scientist Sir Isaac Newton said that he could take his telescope and look millions of miles into space. But then he added, when I lay it aside, go into my room, shut the door, and get down on my knees in earnest prayer, I see more of heaven and feel closer to the Lord than if I were assisted by all the telescopes on earth. Aren't you glad Jesus ascended to heaven? But aren't you also glad that one more moment is still to come in the future? And that is his return. Luke doesn't write about that. But John does in the book of Revelation. We have to go all the way to the end of the New Testament. And I want to look completely to the end of the whole story. To Revelation 22:20, Where we have the last words of Christ in the Bible. Where it says, He who testifies to these things says... Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Jesus is coming again. Now, no one knows the day or the hour. You can have charts of Daniel and Revelation and 
They can be from the greatest scholars. You can outline the whole thing in Greek. You can study it backwards and forwards. But we're not told exactly when Jesus will return because that is not the point. The point of studying these great books like Revelation is to motivate us to be ready whenever he comes and to motivate us to live as if he could return tomorrow. And what does that mean? Basically two things. First, that our lives are right with him. And two, that we're trying to take as many people with us as possible. Why? Because Jesus is coming back. If everything else he said would happen, happened, then certainly the one thing that's left to happen will happen. Jesus is coming back. And it's going to be spectacular. John MacArthur writes, The first time Jesus came, he came veiled in the form of a child. A star marked his arrival. Wise men brought him gifts. There was no room for him. Only a few attended his arrival. The next time Jesus comes, he'll be recognized by all. Heaven will be lit by his glory. He will bring rewards for his own. The world won't be able to contain his glory. Every eye shall see him. He will come as sovereign king and Lord of all. As the old gospel song says, what a day, glorious day that will be. Seven movements, seven truths. What a story. And there's more to the story of Jesus than Christmas. There's more to the story of Jesus than Easter. There's even more to the story of Jesus than these seven movements, of course. But as I reflected upon his life this week, I wrote the following poem. He's more than a baby. He's more than a boy. His humble life turns our sadness to joy. He's more than a teacher, even more than a priest. He removes our sins as far as the east. He's more than a prophet, more than a scribe. For his word is true, final, and wise. Yes, he's more than all this, so much more for sure. For he's the Savior, Messiah, and Lamb so pure. He's Redeemer, Sustainer, God of all might. The one who triumphs and scatters the night. Death is defeated. The grave has no sting. And life is abundant, eternal, and free. He's Alpha, Omega, the way, truth, and life. The absolute victor who ends all our strife. No one is greater. None more exalted than he. He's more than we can imagine, hope, or dream. He is Jesus, Jesus, the object of praise. Jesus, Jesus, to whom our hands raise. Nothing is better, nothing more good than knowing him, this Jesus, who was more than a man. Do you know Jesus? Not just about him, but do you know him? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ for that's what Christmas is all about the best gift you could ever receive if you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior is to do just that for you to be transformed today the first gift of Christmas is the best gift that was ever offered and that is the gift of a Savior and Lord 
So if you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, in just a few moments we're going to stand and sing a song of invitation and we invite you. Accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today. If you are already a believer, then I encourage you to use the song that we're going to sing as your prayer to the Lord, declaring to Him that knowing Him is better than everything else. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you thanking you for Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to know him, to know him personally, to know him intimately. We're grateful, Lord, for all of the things that you did in order to make a way for us, and we pray that you'll make a way for someone today, that someone would trust you as their Lord and Savior. It's good to know you, Lord, and we want to know you more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.